from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with William Collins. At age 13, Bill read the Bible and started asking questions. And at age 15, he read the Quran and recognized that same voice from the Bible. At age 18, Bill knew that these and the other major world religions were linked together somehow, but didn't know what that link was. Bill describes his journey to discovering this link. He is a published author and has contributed to the Encyclopedia of Millennialism, I started the interview by asking Bill where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a small hamlet in upstate New York. It's a place called Brisbane. Not sure it's ever been mentioned on on a podcast or a radio program at all. There were about 150 people that lived in Brisbane. It's one of those places where you drive through and the signs are almost back-to-back and you don't know that you've been through something, a small collection of houses. I was born in Green, New York, which was about six miles away. This is all not far from Binghamton, which some people may know, or about 70 miles to the south and a little east of Syracuse, New York, so perhaps people can place it. I would say it was, growing up in in a small place like that, it was like a fishbowl in the sense that everybody knew what you were doing all the time, but also it was very beautiful. The countryside was absolutely lovely, rolling hills, and it was a place, for me, was just filled with magic and interest, because there were people to watch, and there were things to see, and I could go off and be my, my, by myself if I wanted. I have a certain nostalgia for the life in the country, now that I live, have lived in cities and suburbs for a while. My high school graduating class had maybe 130 people in it, which is considered small, I think, for many people who have attended city high schools and large centralized schools. So I was very interested in the life of the mind. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I played a bit, but I was really kind of a loner. Spent a lot of time on my own reading. One of, that was one of my great hobbies, reading and going out for walks and listening to classical music. And also, quite frankly, Spiritual things. I mean, for me, I guess I, I guess you could say I was never without without a sense of God's presence. I never had an issue of sort of doubt, agnosticism, atheism, or anything like that. You know, I always felt that He was around. You know, I read the Bible on my own. I read the plays of Shakespeare when I was twelve years old. You know, I was, I was that kind of kid, the one that everybody looks at and says. Why is he doing that? <laughs> you know, why is he interested in those things? It was it was really the life of the mind and the spirit that kind of held my attention. Was this reflective of your parents? My parents are not really intellectual. 
my mom, I love her dearly. She never finished high school. I think ended up having to go to work basically in, in a, a sock-making factory when she was 16 or 17 years old. She was very quickly in the life of work and ultimately marrying my dad and being a mom. My father graduated from high school and never had the opportunity because of family circumstances to go to college and went very quickly into driving a truck. I don't know, when I was about four or five years old, he bought or inherited the business, the farm machinery business that he was working in. And so he became a, an owner of a farm machinery business, Shenango Farm Supply, in Brisbane, New York. My parents, I guess I could describe as they would have a lot of interaction with people playing cards a couple nights of week, a week and having friends in, watching TV, and maybe reading a few magazines. The kind of life that I went into with reading Shakespeare, reading the Bible, and this kind of thing was really just a little odd to them. They weren't quite sure what to make of me, I think. Yeah. When I was about 12, uh, this gets back to my family again. My father, my father's of English extraction, and so he's always traditionally been Episcopalian, which is Church of England. And my mother, Methodist, she has in more recent years become a Seventh-day Adventist. So my parents have a kind of you know, interesting religious background themselves. When I was 12 years old, my parents, between the age, I guess when I was ages 10 to 12, they sent me to the local Baptist church in Brisbane. It was the only church in Brisbane, New York. It's, a, it's an American Baptist church, not Southern Baptist, but American Baptist. They sent me to Sunday school for a couple of years. And when I was 12, you, you know, in, in that particular church, you graduate from Sunday school and you become a member of the congregation who attends the regular Sunday service. And at the age of 12, they, they gave me a Bible as a graduation present. And I sat down and I read the Bible all the way through from cover to cover. It was one thing previously to have been fed, if you will, the doctrine of the church through the sermons of the minister and through the Sunday school. And it was another thing when I read it for myself and I was absolutely entranced by the the Bible stories, and particularly, of course, by the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And so I, at that point, committed myself to Christ. But I didn't do it in the formality of the Church. In other words, I wasn't baptized, at, you know, in the, the Baptist Church way at the, at the age of, I think it's 13. Instead, I simply maintained a sense of being a Christian on my own. And I also found that I would have views or ask questions, have views about the Church or about the life of Jesus or about his teachings that were not in total accord with or that discomfited people who had a more traditional understanding of the, of the teachings of Christ. Can you give me an example? Uh, and I would, give you, I would give you an example here. When I read about when Jesus says, for instance, I am the way and the truth and the life, no man cometh to the Father but by me. I took that as a statement that Jesus made at the time that he was on earth, that he was the way through which all people had to approach God. But I also understood that there were other religions that appeared after, and that I wasn't going to take that statement and, because of that statement, 
assume that all others were false. And so when I would ask questions, for instance, about Muhammad, I would be told he was a false prophet. But uh, my view was that I didn't have the information to know that, and that I couldn't assume that merely on the basis of what was in the Bible, because I couldn't be sure that I knew that Jesus meant, for all time, I, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, am solely the only way. How old were you when you came to this? About 13, 13 or 14. Even about Muhammad? Yes, because mm-hmm. I was reading books about the Bible that were the sort of Bible explanations, and there would be passages in them saying that Islam was a false religion and Muhammad was a false prophet. And I said, well, why did they say, they say this based on certain statements in the Bible, but I said, what have they investigated about Islam so that they know for sure that they're right in what they're saying? Why not emphasize Jesus in any case instead of saying somebody else is false? say Jesus is true. You had a questioning attitude at 13. I had a questioning attitude, yes. And when I was 15, actually, I had an English teacher in high school who was not really the best English teacher, except he did one thing. He had a set of books that he would loan to the students. We had a school library, but they didn't always have certain kinds of things. And one of the things, you know, that, that he thought students should explore and one of them, he happened to have an English translation of the Qur'an, which is the sacred scripture of Islam. And I said one day, I want to borrow that. And I took it home, and you know what I did? I read it through from cover to cover. So at the age of 15, I read the Qur'an. And I said after reading it, I, because I heard the voice of God, I said, this is also revelation from God. So whoever is saying that Muhammad is a false prophet and the Qur'an is, is uh, a false scripture and Islam is a false religion, don't know what they're talking about. Because I read, it, uh, I read it through and I said, this is the voice of God speaking. It's the voice of God just as clearly as I heard it in Moses and all the prophets of Israel and also in Jesus. So I said, this is, this is from God also. And in a sort of a, I guess a sort of an odd way, I was sort of a Christian Muslim <laughs> at the time, and I went through the rest of my teenage years reading, I read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, one of the sacred texts of Hinduism. And I said, my goodness, it sounds like Krishna came from God, too. And I read information about the Buddha, and then I also read about many other religions and religious movements that were sort of, if you will, part of other great religions, such as various groups in Christianity. I read Mary Baker Eddy's Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, which is the basic text of the Christian scientists. I read the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. I studied all of these things. And at the age of 18, I came to the conclusion, and it was really logically thought through in my mind, I knew that there was a God, so there, is, there wasn't a question about there wasn't a God. Definitely, there, God. I've been talking to him, I've been praying to him and talking with him for the last 18 years, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, that, that's not a question for me. Since there is a God, now, there are several possibilities. He really did create only one religion that was true. That is, one of these uh, claimants to divine authority was true and all the others false. And I said, but I've read them. I've studied them all. I know that not to be the case, because the spiritual reality underlying them all is clearly from God. I hear his voice. I hear his voice in all of them. So 
that was not an issue for me. But then I said, well, okay, if it's, if it's not that, then there, there are only a couple other options. Either he revealed all the religions, and then he said, okay, now I'm going to sit back and watch you fight amongst yourselves. And I thought, you know, that doesn't sound like the God I know. My only other conclusion was, there is something that links them all, but I don't know what it is yet. And this was at the age of 18. Now, let me tell you what happened. At the age of 18, I graduated from Green Central High School. I was the valedictorian of the class, so got to deliver the valedictory address at the graduation. My valedictory address, delivered, I might add, just shortly after Robert Kennedy had been assassinated and Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, was about unity. I spoke about the need for people to rise above their differences and find their unity in their common humanity. Little did I know that this was kind of having reached this conclusion, which for those of your listeners who may not be Baha'is or may not know, that the unity of humanity is one of the essential teachings of the Baha'i faith. And so at the age of 18, I'd gone through all of this, and in June of 1968, after I'd graduated from high school, that tells you how old I am. I was born in 1950. I saw that there was a television program to be one Sunday morning on Lamp Unto My Feet, which was a, um, a widely acclaimed religion program on CBS on Sunday mornings. And this was about a religion that I'd never heard of, and it was spelled B-A-H-A apostrophe I. I had never heard of this. I didn't know what it was. And I said, I guess I have to watch this because, you know, I'm still searching for this, and it's probably a dead end, but I'm still searching for whatever this thing that you, brings all the religions into clarity as, as having come from God, that this is out there somewhere. And lo and behold, this starts off, and what are some of the first words of it? The narrator says, he was exiled and imprisoned for teaching that all the religions are one. And I was hooked. I stopped and I said, I am watching this whole program. Of course, the first thing I wanted to know was, who was he? Because this was the interesting thing. They didn't say the Baha'i faith teaches, or they said he was exiled and imprisoned for teaching that all the religions are one. And I knew that there had to be a he, there had to be someone who had said, I speak for God, and because that's what had happened before. So there were quotations from these beautiful writings that I had never heard, and I said, that's the voice of God. And then they said, who was he? Baha'u'llah, the glory of God. I said, it's him. I knew it. It's him. Bill, when you yes. say, it's him, what did you mean by, it's him? He is the messenger of God. He is Jesus. He is Muhammad. He is what God has promised. God said that he would send a messenger that would restore all that he had taught, all that was true, and that would, that would bring mankind into an era of peace and security. And I knew this was he. And so you were expecting this? 
I was expecting this. I'd read all the holy books. I was expecting this. So I knew right then and there this was from God, that I had to deal with it. In other words, there wasn't a turning away and saying, oh, well, I'll deal with this at another time. No, I can, I can get to that later. It was, I have to deal with this, because this is the most important thing in life, is knowing when he comes. The Bible says, watch. And the Bible also says, he will come as a thief in the night. Yes, it also says, as ye see him go up to heaven, so shall ye likewise see him come down. What's interesting about that is that Jesus had already said when he was on trial, he said, no man goeth up to heaven, saving he that came down to heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So Jesus was saying, I came from heaven, I'm in heaven right now, and I'm going back up. So if he did that while he was standing here in three dimensions on the earth, I figured that when Jesus returned, that's how he would come back. So I said, this is the one I've been waiting for. And what I did was I wrote, I wrote a letter to the address. They gave an address right at the end for Baha'is in Binghamton, New York. It was about 30 miles away. I wrote to them and I said, I want more information. They sent me two pamphlets, at little knowing who they were dealing with. You know, I'm, I was a really cheeky kid. And I wrote back and I said, uh, I got all this from the TV program. I want something more substantial. So they sent me an introductory text called Baha'u'llah and the New Era by J.E. Esselmont, and I read that in one day, and I wrote back to them again, and I said, all right, I don't want any more of this stuff about the Baha'i faith. I want the writings of Baha'u'llah. I want your sacred scripture, because that is what's important. It's not what other people said about it. It is what's in the scripture, and I, and I gave them a list. They managed to give, get me a wonderful book called the, the Book of Certitude, which is Baha'u'llah's explanation of the process of progressive revelation, that God reveals himself progressively throughout history to different peoples at different times, all part of one single faith of God revealed in stages. When I read that, I was absolutely convinced, I knew. They sent me a number of other works by Baha'u'llah. I read all of these. I still had not met any of the Baha'is. I went off to Middlebury College in Vermont, Middlebury, Vermont, and this was this, so this is getting after high school. So I went off to Middlebury College, and I had written ahead to someone up there. I'd found from the Baha'is in Binghamton that there was a Baha'i in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is about two hours' drive from, from Middlebury. They, they'd given me the contact information for the Baha'is nearest to Middlebury, who were about 30 miles away. So I got to Middlebury... The typical thing a freshman will do, you know, with making friends and so on, you get into the discussion of what is your religion. And I said, they would ask me what my religion was, and I said, well, I'm, really, I'm kind of a Baha'i. And they said, what do you mean, kind of a Baha'i? And I said, well, I haven't really officially become one yet. Here's what it is about. And they were interested, and they kept asking me, well, but why haven't you become one yet? That was a good question. And I think part of it was that my intellect was now trying to ask questions of my heart and trying to convince me that, you know, there must be something wrong here, because this is all too good to be true. And so, but I kept reading these writings, and I kept looking, and I said, there's no flaw here. 
is this from God? So I finally said, okay, okay, God, I surrender. I will become a Baha'i. I telephoned the nearest Baha'is. They arranged to come up the next day. There were three, three men who all appeared old to me since I was 18. You know, they all appeared old. I think they were probably around their early 30s, but they looked old to me, you know, as a young kid. And they accepted my enrollment in the Baha'i faith, and they were the first Baha'is that I met. I had never met a Baha'i before. The one whom I had met was Baha'u'llah in his writing. (laughs) And so that was what I needed, and that was who I needed, and I knew it was true. And from there on... So since 1968, right now we're at 39 years as a Baha'i. It'll be 40 next year. Did you have preconceptions of how Christ would return if you were expecting him? And was it recognizing the voice of God that sort of changed your perception of what you thought the return would be? Actually, you know, I, I would say that I held together in my mind all the possibilities of how Christ might appear. And I didn't rule any of them out completely. I simply said, you know, when it's time, I'll know. If it's by some magical thing where he appears in the sky, I'll know. But I said, you know, I don't think that that's the way it's going to happen, because that people have been waiting before. The, the Jews of Jesus' time, the, the Pharisees in particular, were, were saying, well, Elijah has to return before the Messiah. And Baha'is do believe that Jesus was the Messiah as well as all the other manifestations were the messiahs for their people. And the Jews believed that Elijah had to return. And the biblical story is Elijah was physically carried up into heaven, and so he would have to come back from heaven. Actually, the Jews who asked John the Baptist, are you, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. But later, after John the Baptist had been killed, the disciples of Jesus asked Jesus, is it not true that Elijah has to come? And isn't this a prophecy? Where is Elijah? You know, so if you're, if you're the promised one, if you're the Messiah, where is Elijah? And Jesus said, indeed, it is true that Elijah must come. And if you have eyes to see, he has come already. And the Bible says, and they knew he meant John the Baptist. Well, how is this possible? Because both statements are true. John the Baptist says, I am not Elijah. Jesus says John the Baptist is Elijah. So how is John the Baptist Elijah? Well, he didn't come down physically out of heaven. So he came in the power and spirit of Elijah and fulfilled his mission. And that's what, that's what the return is. So, I mean, I had already read those passages before I ever read uh, anything in the Baha'i teachings that talked about those passages, and certainly there are parts of the Baha'i writings that talk about those passages in the Bible. But I had read them and already come to this conclusion. I didn't have a preconception that said, oh, I know Jesus is going to come in a specific way and then try to reject anything else that was different. I said, you know, Jesus could come, the, the, the new manifestation, the new messenger, the return of Christ could happen in whatever way God wants it to happen. So I need to be open to the way God makes it happen, not the way I want it to be not the way I think my interpretation of the Bible makes it supposed to be. You follow me? Absolutely. Okay. Once you started reading the Baha'i writings, was there things about the Baha'i writings that created a new outlook toward religion or toward life that you hadn't realized up to that point 
in your own reading of the scriptures of Christianity and other religions? In some ways, that's difficult to look back on. Mm-hmm. I don't have a conscious memory of having these things. I think for one reason being that so much that I had come to understand was already so much in tune with the Baha'i teachings about the oneness of humanity, about the oneness of religion, about the need for a world federation democratically elected and governed, the equality of women and men. I mean, these were not, these were not problems for me. I think that the only thing one, one might say about this is that I became a Baha'i both because there were all of these things that I was connected to already in terms of broad principles, but also because the Baha'i faith is challenging. Just as if one is a true Christian and one accepts all of the Bible, not merely the parts that agree with what one already accepts, that likewise, as a Baha'i, I accepted all of the parts of the Baha'i teachings, including those that were easy and those that were maybe a little more challenging for me. I think for young people in particular, in the society in which I, you know, this was the late 60s. This was the time of, pardon the expression, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know? So there were a lot of things that people kind of accepted as normal. Uh, the Baha'i teachings say are, are not good for you. For, for instance, the importance of chastity before marriage and faithfulness after marriage, not using recreational drugs, not drinking alcohol. Now, these weren't really challenges for me in terms of my behavior, because I wasn't doing those things, but they were challenges in the sense that this was becoming the accepted kind of way of being revolutionary, overthrowing the old order, was to sort of embrace these things. And so, in some senses, I had to take the challenge of that in in the Baha'i teachings and kind of translate it to my peers, which wasn't always easy. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I had many friends who were themselves I would say, relatively stable emotionally and psychically and spiritually, who weren't into these things either, and that was kind of a support. I think that, on the whole, I would have to say that the Baha'i teachings themselves didn't present any significant problems for me, because once I had recognized the divine voice, I accepted that which the voice had said, that which had been written. You know, and the Baha'i faith has this beautiful image throughout all of the religions. There's this notion of the Word of God or the Divine Word. And the way Baha'u'llah talks about it, he talks about the revelation of verses, the words of God, being the true miracle. Anything else that's claimed to be a miracle, those are proofs to the individuals who may witness them. And people enhance what they see in many ways, that which is written, that which is stated and, and put down as the Word of God, has a, a validity that everyone can access. It's there for us to read. And in the Baha'i writings, is this, there are a number of wonderful images where Baha'u'llah not only talks about the Word of God being this master key to the hearts of his creatures, but he also turns it around and refers to himself as the living book. And so we have both the written book, 
that is the evidence for all people. And we also have in the manifestation of God the living book, that is, he embodies the Word of God. I found this so fascinating and that when I understood this, I didn't have to challenge or question the Baha'i writings in that sense. I questioned them only in the sense of, I'm not understanding this part of the Baha'i teachings. Help me understand it, as opposed to saying, oh, I don't agree with this part of the Baha'i teachings. Well, you know, it, it, because if I'd done that, if I'd said, I don't agree with this part of the Baha'i teachings, this is silly or whatever, I would have been going against what my heart and my mind had already told me, which was that Baha'u'llah was a manifestation of God and had brought the divine will and the word of God. And therefore, to accept one part of it and reject one part of it would be to do like people in the past had done and distorted their faith and distorted its influence on humanity. And I wasn't going to do that. So I took it all. And I said, my issue, the issue for me is my understanding. And my understanding always has to keep improving. And if I can keep improving my understanding of it, and I can assist others to do that as well, then the world is going to be okay. So that's my approach. Mm -hmm. You said in your valedictorian speech you had yes. spoke of unity, which happened to be one of the key or fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. Another fundamental principle of the Baha'i faith is this idea of we are now a world civilization, and to solve problems we need to have a world vision and yes. the national vision is out of date and not going to solve the problems that we have today. Did you also have that concept before you became a Baha'i? I did, but I would say that it was a concept limited by my experience of the world. Living in Brisbane, New York, and, and the surrounding area, my, in my whole high school, I think there were two families that were Jewish, for instance. I think there was maybe one or two families who were African-American. Almost everybody else was European-American Christian. And there was very little diversity in that sense. I had the concept of diversity, but not the experience of diversity. So initially, I think my study of religions and my reading a lot was getting the intellectual preparation for understanding diversity in ways that I could only experience later, and I experienced them as a Baha'i. Because once I became a Baha'i and started interacting with Baha'i communities and met Baha'is from Iran, which is where the faith originated, and so in many Baha'i communities you will find Baha'is in, in the United States will find Baha'is from Iran. So I was meeting Baha'is from Iran. I was meeting many more African-Americans because the Baha'i faith has a significant African-American population, and after all, its teaching is that one should eliminate prejudice of race, religion, nationality, creed, and so forth. So it was after becoming a Baha'i that, that the reality of world civilization was brought home to me in my experience of it in the Baha'i community itself, particularly at the age of 20, what was I, 27 so it was a few years after, after I graduated from college and university. I'd gotten a master's degree in library science at Syracuse University, and I worked for three years at the library at Middlebury College, actually. I went back to Middlebury as, a, as an employee rather than a student. In 1977, my wife and I... Oh, I haven't even talked about my wife yet. <laughs> my wife and I were invited to serve at the Baha'i World Center 
basically as the librarians to set up the library there. And so when I experienced the diversity of the Baha'i World Center, people from many countries, it was just an additional confirmation of this idea that the Baha'i faith is the world in microcosm and that the whole world can come to this place where all become united and able to work together for the common good of humanity. You graduated from Middlebury College? Yes, in 1972. And then I spent one year getting my master's degree at Syracuse University in Master of Science and Library Science. So in 1973, I started working at the Middlebury College Library. My wife, Rachel, Rachel Brunstetter, and I, we met each other in college. She was not a Baha'i when we met. She had the good sense to separate falling in love with me from falling in love with the Baha'i faith. So she would ask her Baha'i questions of another Baha'i on campus, and she would leave the falling in love with me to the interacting with me. So we were married the day before Rachel's graduation, and about a week after I had started my job at Middlebury College. So it was <laughs> kind of an interesting time. And it's been great and wonderful since. We're good partners. Mm-hmm. And you were called to Haifa Israel to help set up the library there at That's the Baha'i World Center. Yes. And we were there from 1977 to 1990. When we arrived, the library was really a collection of books with a handwritten set of a few cards. The books were in a number of places, not always in the best condition. One has to remember that the Baha'i World Center has undergone a transformation in the last 20 or 30 years, from being in several small buildings to being in several newly constructed administrative buildings on Mount Carmel in Haifa, Israel. We were going through that transition phase and had quite a time getting everything together, establishing ourselves, establishing our credibility as librarians and as people who knew what they were doing, knew how to organize materials. By the time we left, we had gone from basically a staff of two, (laughs) my wife and me, to a staff of about 12 when I left, and we had about 100,000 items in the library. I guess it was about 20 or 30,000 titles at the time we left, most of them on the Baha'i faith or with reference to the Baha'i faith. And why did you leave the Baha'i World Center? We had two children who were born in Haifa, my son Jonathan and my daughter Sarah. You you know that sometimes in life you just know that you've reached a point where you've done what you can in a particular place and that for your better development you need to set foot in another locale to flourish, to grow. It's like transplanting the plant. You know, Sometimes you have to transplant a plant to another place to grow further. And certainly I was at that point, I was in need of that kind of growth and that opportunity to to explore additional talents and abilities. And also, I think, in part, just to establish myself in the world. You know, previously to this, the three years at Middlebury College were kind of a preparation to be able to go and build from nothing, from scratch, the library at the Baha'i World Center. I think when you've done something like that and you've kind of got it all established, Some people are the people who like to go and start something new. 
And so I was feeling the itch to do that. I wouldn't say it was an easy decision. I think it was tough. It was tough for me to make, and I know it was tough for the rest of my family. I think my kids suffered the most because for them it was a decision that they were lesser partners in making, and I think they really didn't want to leave. We chose to come back. I went to work at the Library of Congress after about six months of job hunting and working in the copyright office, which is in the Library of Congress, first as a division chief and now as the planning officer. What does that mean? Basically, I help the office with its strategic planning, its annual planning. I deal with keeping the office consistent on gathering statistics and giving out statistics so that we're not saying two different things to people. I deal with management controls, which is the process of guarding the institution against waste, fraud, and mismanagement, so that no one can, for instance, surreptitiously steal money or that kind of thing, the kind of stuff that I do. And I've been enjoying it. It actually helps me in my Baha'i life because the Baha'i faith involves a lot of planning. And so it's proved very useful. And how is it involved in planning? Shoghi Effendi, who's the the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah, was the guardian of the Baha'i faith from 1921 to 1957. And he established a series of plans for the growth and the development and the spread of the Baha'i faith. The whole notion of planning, because of his example, we know that there are periodically plans that go for a certain number of years that have certain goals and outcomes that we're looking for and certain long-term directions that we want to head. You know, we want to, we want to bring the Baha'i faith to more and more people, to have more and more people respond positively to it, those that feel so inclined to affiliate, to join with the Baha'i community, to become followers of Baha'u'llah, and to help build the world based on the principles and the institutions that he brought for all of humanity. So we're in the midst of such a plan right now. It's a five-year plan, and it goes until 2011. This is just part and parcel of the way Baha'is plan their activities. They have spiritual activities, and their spiritual activities are part of plans for broadening the reach of the Baha'i community through such, such things as study circles that we have for Baha'is, for new Baha'is, for people who are not Baha'is who want to learn more about spiritual matters or about the Baha'i faith. We have devotionals that are held in people's home, Baha'i's homes and uh, homes of uh, others who are not Baha'is who want to have home-based worship, basically, and get together as community. We have children's classes that are offered for the children in a neighborhood that doesn't have to be Baha'is, but it's to help them learn more about, not only about the Baha'i teachings, but also about virtues and the way to be in the world and helping them to grow up in a safe and comfortable environment. We also have junior youth groups, which is a way of helping develop young people in the ages of 12, 13, 14. All of these are part of our planning for what's ultimately the idea of bringing more and more people into the Baha'i faith or that movement or that powerful spiritual force that God has created to reach humanity. So what do you see the future holding for you? I think it holds a lot of activity. I will tell you this. I am the secretary of an area teaching committee. We won't need to go into that a lot for all of your audience, but Mm -hmm. basically it means that I'm kind of coordinating the affairs in a cluster of Baha'i communities that's 
developing programs for reaching out to people. And so there's a great deal of activity there on top of my regular job. We haven't even discussed the fact, I guess, you know, here I am sitting with a pile of books in front of me. We haven't discussed the fact that I uh, am a published author. And so there's stuff of mine that appears every now and then. I prepared and compiled a bibliography of English language works on the Babi and Baha'i religions, 1844 to 1985, that was published by George Ronald Publisher in Oxford, England in 1990. And a number of articles on all kinds of aspects of Baha'i history and social development and so on. An article I did about Baha'i family life for a scholarly publication and some things on Christian prophecy and millennialism, which is the expectation of a of a time of sudden changes that will bring about a world of peace and prosperity. I have a couple of articles, two or three articles about the Baha'i faith in relation to Mormonism. I see more of that coming. I have an article that I collaborated with uh, Dr. Peter Smith on. He's a well-known sociologist and Baha'i author on of academic works on the Baha'i faith. We have an article coming out on Baha'i millennialist thinking behind millennialism for the Oxford Handbook on Millennialism. So some of the future is when I can get to it is writing. And I say when I can get to it because frequently I am so busy with the many things I do in my various Baha'i duties. I'm also a member of a, of a spiritual assembly, uh, the local governing Baha'i body here in Mount Vernon, Virginia. So these things, because there are all of these activities and the things that go with them, I don't always get to the writing I probably could write ten times as much if I did nothing else. But at this point, I get a few things out from time to time. So those of you who are out there who read the Baha'i Studies Review or the Journal of Baha'i Studies or World Order, all of which are Baha'i journals, you'll you occasionally see something from me in there. Is there uh, something that a non-Baha'i audience might run across? They will run across my things that are in the non-Baha'i academic resources, such as I was mentioning the Oxford Handbook on Millennialism, and there's also something called the Encyclopedia of Millennialism and Millennial Movements, which was published by Rutledge Publishers four or five years ago, and the article on the Baha'i faith in there is by me. They might run into some library-related articles, but many of those are somewhat older, like at least 10 years, for a journal called Cataloging and Classification Quarterly. So some of the librarians out there may have run into those. They do have a basis in my work at the Baha'i World Center, so they're about the Baha'i faith in the sense of the Baha'i library, my work there. So that's the kind of thing that they will be likely to run into. I should mention that they may see three or four articles by me in the Baker Street Journal, which is the Journal of Studies of Sherlock Holmes. I have three or four articles that appeared in the Baker Street Journal. One of them is about... Sherlock Holmes and Victorian racial attitudes. In one of the stories, Sherlock Holmes shows some prejudice against people of African descent. And I wrote about that. I also also wrote actually one about Sherlock Holmes and Persia and his contact with the Baha'i faith during the period that he was thought to have been dead after having fought Moriarty at the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. And he made everybody believe that he was dead, but in fact he had a few years' hiatus in which he was thought to be dead, but he was actually traveling in Tibet, India, Persia, and stopping in at Mecca, 
and going to Khartoum in the Sudan. So I had a little, a little article about his time in Persia and his meeting the Baha'is there and what he learned about it. You have to understand that this kind of writing about Sherlock Holmes is a send-up of scholarship. It is intended to spoof scholarship because one does it all very seriously with all the proper footnotes and all the proper speculation that academics do, but with all the patina of this is really the truth and I've discovered all the facts about this. The, the whole point is you can build all sorts of theories on relatively little in the academic world. And so it was a send-up, and yet at the same time, it was a wonderful way of educating a group of people about things happening in the 19th century that actually did relate to the Baha'i faith, you see. We know from history, for instance, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the author of the, the published Sherlock Holmes stories, actually did have a connection with the Baha'i faith. He invited an itinerant Baha'i traveler, well-known to Baha'is by the name of Martha Root, to his church in England, and she spoke on the Baha'i faith at his church. And so all of these connections are just fun things to help people learn more about Baha'i history and also maybe be interested in reading the Sherlock Holmes story. So it's a way of having fun with scholarship. That's some of the stuff that, I, that I've done. You know. So, Bill, I would like to go back to the millennial publications. Yeah. Can you describe in general what these publications cover and then what your entry was for the Baha'i faith? Basically, what they're covering is this idea of promise that religions have, even social groups have, and that various cultures may have, of some time in the future where the corrupt or evil order of the world is overturned through the agency of God or a divine hero, the return of the messenger, or through the agency of God's people to change the world suddenly, drastically, to be that world of peace and prosperity in which all can live well and happily forever and ever. Amen. In some cultures, this is viewed very literally as God will send his messenger down and he will wipe everything clean, all the evil people will be destroyed, and the earth will be made over, and so on and so forth. It also is, for some religions, is simply the promise that some great being will appear and will either lead the, the believers in battle or will cause transformation to take place. Most religions, not all, but most religions have a millennial component when they begin. If you read in the New Testament, the many statements Jesus says about the time of the end. By the way, in Greek, it, the, the time of the end is the end of, not the end of the world, even though it's been translated that, but the end of the eon, you know, the end of an age. Jesus makes these statements that he will return and the world will be remade. And many of the believers of his time thought that this would happen very soon, and that in a short time after his death and resurrection, that Jesus would reappear and that he was going to remake everything. It's this expectation of a time when everything will be remade. 
why the term millennial? That that refers oh, to I'm a thousand. That, yes. re, that refers to a thousand it, years, it comes, and it's it been two thousand years. It comes and, out of the Bible. It comes out of the Book of Revelation, the Revelation of Saint John, in which there's this whole notion of Christ returning and reigning for a thousand years, and at the end of the thousand years, there's this whole idea of. The devil is let loose again briefly, and then all evil is destroyed. And there's, so there's this idea of a thousand years of peaceful reign with Jesus reigning, and then the battle of Armageddon, and all evil is destroyed, and the world is paradise. That millennialism comes from that thousand-year idea. It applies to more than Christianity. It's now being applied in a scholarly way to all religions and movements that have this expectation of some overturn of the current order or of a corrupt order for something new and wonderful in the image of whatever their belief happens to be. And in the case of the Baha'i faith, the interesting thing is that Shia Islam had this expectation. The Muslims in Iran are, are Shia, which means they are of the party of the family of Muhammad. There were those who followed, those who elected or acclaimed the leaders called caliphs, and those are the Sunnis. And then the Shia said that the descendants of Muhammad are the ones who should be the leaders of the faith. They're called imams. The Shia had an expectation that in the year 1260, the twelfth imam who had disappeared in 260 of the Islamic calendar would reappear. Now, 1260 and the Islamic calendar is 1844 A.D. And in 1844, the Bab, who was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, the Bab means the gate, he appeared in Iran, and he said that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So he was fulfilling the millennial expectations of Muslims in Iran. And, and many of the people who followed him, who are called Babis, had this belief, that given what the Islamic prophecies said, that all of a sudden the Bab, as this returned 12th Imam, and then as a new manifestation or messenger of God, was going to overturn the old order dramatically. But of course, it didn't happen that way, and the Bab himself said, no, this is not the means I'm, that I use to transform the world. The world is transformed by the power of the Word of God, and that takes time. The Bob also made a promise that there would be one who was coming after him, that he called, He Whom God Will Manifest, the promised one of all ages. And that was Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah made the claim to be that being, that person. And so you have this promise, and you also have Baha'u'llah saying, I have come to fulfill the promises of all the religions of the past. And in this day, with the message that I bring for all humanity, humanity will attain to tranquility and peace, will have this dynamic, unified life on this planet, and will establish that kingdom of God that's been promised. So the promise looking forward from the religions of the past toward this last day or this time when everything would be remade. There's an, an academic term called eschatology, that is the doctrine of last things. It comes from eschaton in Greek. And so there's this hope for these last things to happen. 
and that's uh, awaiting this to happen is that millennialist expectation. When the Bob and Baha'u'llah came and they said, we are the fulfillment, that's what's called realized eschatology, that is, realized things. The last days have happened, we are in them, and it's not the last days of Earth, it is the last days of an old age and the beginning of a new one. And this new age is what Baha'u'llah says is an age of peace and the unification of humanity. That's the gist of it, and there are a number of articles that I've written that cover some of these things, and people, if they're interested, can go to the Encyclopedia of Millennialism or to a couple of articles I did in World Order magazine about, I think it was 1998, on Millennialism, the Millerites, and Historicism. Uh, Yes, 1998. Well, Bill, we've run out of time. It was a real pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with William Collins, a Baha'i who works at the Library of Congress and is a published author, including his contribution to the Encyclopedia of Millennialism. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.